The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. Crafted in California, the LAL brand combines the latest technology with cycling tradition to deliver an experience that is authentically California. View their retail gear and custom program at LALcycling.com. That's E-L-I-E-L cycling.com. And the Pace Line is supported by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. The finish line has no clue if a man or woman crosses it. So why do the people who hang up that banner? There are still a lot of organizers and a lot of race series that don't pay out equal payments. There's, I think there's a general belief in cycling that I think it's it's still just such a sexist, ingrained belief that women should have other jobs, that women being athletes full-time is inappropriate. The Pace Line looks at women and cycling and not just racing. Somebody told me to get off the road, and I had been so, I was like, that was the last straw. I mean, just so tired of people not understanding you know, that bicycles belong on the road and that we have a right to be there. Welcome to the Paceline Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Brady. And unfortunately, Fatty, better known uh, to, to his family members as Eldon Nelson, um, he is not with us this week. He's off doing his real job uh, in New Jersey. And so I've asked a special guest uh, to join us this week uh, for this episode, uh, Diane Jenks of The Outspoken Cyclist. Hi, Diane. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm doing well. It's probably a little warmer where you are than where we are, but that's all right. We'll <laughs> suck it up. What What is it like where you are? Actually, when I came to the studio to uh, have this chat with you, I think it was 34 degrees. Oh, <laughs> uh, and for our listeners who don't know where you are, why don't you tell them just exactly where that is? So I am, uh, The Outspoken Cyclist is a production out of John Carroll University in Northeast Ohio in a little suburb called University Heights. Uh, it is a suburb of Cleveland, and we've been on the air since September of 2010 in that podcasting realm. Good grief. I, I, know. I mean, it's... You've produced so many, and you, I mean, among the many interviews you've done over the years, at some point you've captured just about, uh, maybe captured it's not the best verb, but you've you've interviewed, you know, just about all the big names in cycling. Um, you know, it's it's really a testament to, you know, your, your endurance in this, uh, and your talent for that matter. Well, I appreciate that. There are still some elusive names out there, and, uh, you know, I never relent. <laughs> I just keep going. <laughs> and we, you know, every week. So I think this week's show is going to be 333, maybe. This is like a special show, 333 or something like that. Excellent. Yeah. Very cool. So the reason I wanted you to help me out this week was that for a little while, I've been wanting to do an episode of The Pace Line in which we focused on women's issues, women in cycling, um, 
that's, you know, and that's all encompassing. It's not just women uh, as writers, but also women working in the industry, women racing. I really wanted to have a chance to do an episode that spoke to the full range of, you know, women participating in this sport. And, uh, you know, one of the typical uh, faux pas or, or other mistakes that, you know, white guys like me make is that we end up mansplaining, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to sort out the problem with women in cycling. And it's like, well, we're kind of where the problem started. So in an effort to cut that, cut down on that, I really wanted you to come in so that we'd have a women's, uh, a woman's voice uh, through the whole of the episode. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Well, I'm, Really glad, number one, that you asked me, and number two, that you're covering the topic. It People talk about women in the industry only all the time. And <laughs> as somebody who has been in the industry for more than four decades, so I started out as a bike shop employee in 1974, became a bike shop owner, um, an author, a seminar leader. I've done a lot of things in the industry, a race director, a ride director. So I've seen a lot of things. And the the bottom line is always the same. We need more women in the industry. Actually, I don't believe that's true. I think what we need is more recognition of women in the industry. We've always been here. Here we are. Hmm. Yeah. So it is yeah, yeah. interesting that, you know, it is it is a it is a boys a boys world, especially in the in the business side. It is better now, I think, on the participation side, but the business side is still a little rough. So the thing I really want to get at, you know, as kind of a starting point is, you know, if you were to turn and put your finger on the the place where we've made the least amount of progress, um, but, you know, have uh, the most to gain by making a change, where would you say it needs to be? You know, what what one thing, if you could be God and wave your magic wand, um you know, what would you change that you think would result in the greatest, you know, overall change in cycling in terms of, you know, making this a climate that is more welcoming to women? Wow, what a question. Wow. Well, first of all, it wouldn't be God waving his hand. It'd be the goddess waving her hand. So we'll start with Ooh, that. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> noted. Uh, I, I well guess, played, white guy. <laughs> I guess I guess the place, I don't think you can start it in one place. It's sort of like, let's look at a wheel. Perfect example. Mm. A hub, Mm -hmm. rim, spokes. So if we're looking at the different areas where women could be better utilized and recognized would be at the retail level, at the distribution level, certainly at the manufacturing level, at the marketing level. So in every area, you know, I used to say that Marketing was 25-year-old white guys. That's who That's who marketed to the bicycle industry. And they didn't understand what it was to be either a woman or a middle-aged person or a senior or even a child. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, when children start to ride a bike, who sells them that bike? You know, some mm-hmm. 25-year-old white guy or 18-year-old white guy in, in a bike shop. That's all changing because bike shops are changing. So... From that, I think more women in bike shops would be awesome. I think the voices of women right now are being heard. Forgetting mine for a second, you know, we have some nice women on this show tonight who are going to be 
talking about their different areas. I'm not sure you could change just one thing, Patrick. I just don't see it. I think you have to change the entire culture of the business and the industry. And, And it needs to start at, you know, the top and go down, it needs to start at the bottom and come up. Most advocacy mm-hmm. groups are are run by women, I would say. So in that regard, we're seeing a huge expansion of advocacy. And I think it's because women get things done. I know that's a terrible thing to say maybe to a men's audience, but women do get things done. You know, I mean, but it's it's in living those stereotypes that, you know, sometimes – um, some unpleasant truths emerge, you know, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing we've got to be very careful with, but there are, you know, sometimes perceptions that, you know, help inform our perspective. Uh, we don't want to live by those assumptions, but, uh, you know, I, from my experience, yeah, a lot of the great work that I've seen done in bicycle advocacy has been by women. And one of the people we're going to be talking with, uh, will be Chris Culver, uh, the former executive director of the Sonoma County Bike Coalition. She sits on the board there now, and she's also a board member for the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance, uh, which is a mountain bike advocacy group here in Sonoma County. And so I wanted, because she's been in, in and around advocacy and works in government now, I wanted to ask her, you know, her impression of, you know, why it is, um, there have been so many women working in advocacy and, you know, where, what it is that they do differently that has been so helpful in us seeing progress in bicycle advocacy. So, well, another uh, person, and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but another person yeah. who rose to the top was or is Barbara McCann. Now, she's probably because the Secretary of Transportation is in the process of being changed. She will probably be leaving that office. But she ended up in the office of the Secretary of Transportation out of her work with Complete Streets. Yeah, she was sort of the mother of Complete Streets. She's the person who put that all together. So, wow. yeah, we're, we've got women at the top. We also have a lot of great bike shop owners. I've known bike shop, I mean, uh, having been one, not to say that I was a great one, but I know a lot of women who own bike shops. You don't think of it that way, though. People don't actually think of that. No, and I'll say, you know, for my part, not that I've had that many uh, experience with shops owned by women. There is just something fundamentally different. You walk in the door of a retail operation owned by a woman and there's just a different vibe. I can't put my finger on it. And this is one of the reasons why I want women talking about this instead of just another white guy. Um, You know, I'd like to think I'm not part of the problem, but I know that I'm not going to inform the solution uh, in the same way that other people will, you know? And so it's one of those things. Yeah, I walk into a bike shop owned by a woman and there's something fundamentally different about it. And it's not, it's something that goes deeper than just, oh, you know, it's well merchandised and it's clean and there are no stupid posters of scantily clad women on the walls. There's something deeper than just those little details. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interested to get people, you know, who understand what that what is, what the why is, um, so that, you know, we can help. Uh, spread the word of, you know, what it is that can be done differently. Um, Because I think ultimately, you know, cycling will be stronger as a result. Oh, I totally agree with that. I think women are wired 
differently from men to approach topics and subjects and I mean, even as simple as sales, you know, you take the same products and you put a woman or a man with the same customer or client and you will see a very different approach, a very different relationship and a very different result many times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So at this point, um, we do have to do what I what I hope will not be. Uh, a bunch of mansplaining, but I want to jump to our first interview uh, for this episode. I got Bill Strickland on the phone, editor-in-chief of Bicycling Magazine. Um, actually, I screw up in the interview and I call him uh, executive editor. That's Leah Flickinger, um, who we will be talking with in a future episode about this very topic. But I wanted to reach out to Bill because I think they, uh, they being Bicycling Magazine, I think bicycling has been a remarkable example of the evolution that needs to occur. Roughly 50% of their editorial staff at this point uh, are women, um, making it a much more diverse bunch. And uh, we talk a little bit about, you know, who those women are um, and how they came uh, to hire them. Hi, Bill. Hey, so thanks so much for agreeing to be on the pace line with us. Um, I, you know, it's been a little while since we've talked and this conversation, I think may be, um, a little bit different from our last couple. Uh, but you know, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is, this is going to be a good one. It's going to be a good talk. It always is when you and I talk. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, back when, uh, Eldon was still doing the fatty cast, uh, the interview you did with him, uh, for that episode, remains my favorite edition of the fatty cast. That was a really fascinating conversation, uh, you know, about writing and publishing, uh, how we think about, you know, uh, the media in the bicycle world. I've gone back and listened to it several times. So who knows, maybe we'll get something just as interesting. Let's let's shoot for that. At at least we've got at least one interesting person involved. So there's that. (laughs) Between you mean I I'm, I'm like half an interesting person and you are half. <laughs> yeah. So um, the big reason we're talking today is that we're doing an entire episode of the Pace Line uh, devoted to women and cycling. And uh, while she's not here with us right now, uh, our friend Diane Lees is helping uh, to host this episode uh, because I didn't want to be accused of mansplaining. Um, I I'm. You know, I'm I'm a, a white guy, so I'm guilty of that at some level, right? Um, but I wanted to talk to you because currently the the bicycling staff um, is the most diverse it's ever been. I remember when I was at the awards at at Sea Otter uh, this past spring. Um, I, I mean, my memory is that it was mostly women at that point. Um, uh, so it's it's not like what most you know, bicycle media has traditionally been, which is a bunch of white guys. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, with you being the executive editor, you know, how did this shift in the staffing of the magazine come about? So that, that's a really good question. And yeah, let's acknowledge up front that we're two like white dudes talking about this, right? We're aware of that. Everyone, everyone listening, we are aware. Um, so, you know, I, I, sh- I should say first that like, uh, no one we've never made uh, decisions to let anyone go or restaff or restructure based on 
uh, gender or race or age or anything like that, just to have that out there. So, but what happens is when you have the opportunity to hire new people, um, we as a sort of senior leadership, uh, Leah Flickinger, who's our executive editor, and uh, Lou Mazzante, who's our digital director, and I made a decision that now that we have the opportunity, we're going to make extra effort to find really awesome women and uh, also people who, you know, we don't want to be like all middle age the same way we don't want to be um, all young, but we wanted to, you know, just reach out and find a real diversity of people with, with gender, with race if we could, and we, tr- we tried and that was really hard and we can talk about that a little bit if you want, and age and uh, even interests of cycling. Like we, we have people... Uh, someone on staff who was a messenger in Portland and who led rides across the country. And, you know, we got people like me who have raced road. Uh, we have a, we have a, a guy who really just kind of rides his bike around town. He's not really like a roadie or anything. And we have Lydia Tanner who uh, world cup mountain bike racer. So really <laughs> diverse. Trick. Yeah. Really diverse group of people all around. Key to that. We thought though, was like, let's get let's get women in here yeah yeah so now that i mean you've been at this you know kind of uh shall we say different collection of people it's you know been more than a year that you've been like this um and so i'm curious okay you've been doing this it's it's now you know kind of an established piece of the magazine what have you seen in terms of changes um you know, in terms of reader response, um, to what degree has the bicycling readership taken note of this? And how, if so, how have they responded? That's a yeah, really good question. So bicycling, uh, you know, 300 and I think we're at 25,000, 325,000 um, subscribers, uh, a little more on newsstand. I mean, a, a little addition to that on newsstand. And then they have that sort of, they call it pass along readership, which is they can find out how many people actually see the issue and i think that's um you know i don't know where that is actually it's like i think it's 1.2 million or something like that two commas right and so what we're trying you know to move that uh a percentage of women uh over time when i came in the 90s it was under 20 percent of sort of subscribers and node audience known audience were women Mm -hmm. uh you know i just got some numbers the other day and there's there's sort of two different ways of looking at it we're somewhere between 40 uh percent and maybe like 42 43 percent and that um that's pretty good if that's actually true but it's just so many people that it's hard to shift that big number meaningfully and that's going to take years because you know people buy a two-year subscription and you know they don't you know so there's all these things that go into it to actually change the demographic that sort of say the advertisers would see However, sort of anecdotally and interacting with the readers and being on social, what we're hearing is that a lot more people of all kinds of uh, interest in cycling, including women, are interested in the mag now. So it hasn't – what's been fascinating for us is it's not – It wasn't. this wasn't like an effort like, let's get more women to read the magazine. It was just an instinct and almost, I thought, like a, a – a mandate if you're in like sort of modern media you've got to represent 
lots of different people. And I, I knew by having uh, w- women here on staff as a big driving force of what we create and how we look at everything, that it would change. It wouldn't just be like, oh, we're appealing to women, but it would just sort of change the entire message that we're putting out there. And that's what's happened. Right. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, that's exactly the the sort of answer I was looking for was something that, you know, kind of considered things. Yeah. Um, And I mean, that it has grown by that much. I mean, that's pretty fantastic feedback for the effort that you've made. It Uh, is. It is great. It's really gratifying because one of the things I believe is that I get in trouble at company meetings sometimes. I say, like, cyclists are we're better than the rest of you. I think cyclists are better people. And I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, one of the things I believe is that the more people we can get on bikes and not just, like, the more, like, you know, the demographic right down the middle is sort of like affluent white dudes. And, yeah, we want to get you guys on bikes too, more of you, a lot more of you on bikes. But I, we got to really reach broad and let's just get everyone on a bike. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing I keep arguing. You know, that's why I love e-bikes so much is that, you know, it's, you know, it's getting people out of SUVs and whatever else. And, you know, the moment the moment people start to identify themselves as, you know, people who ride a bike, um, you know, they start to see those other people, you know, we recognize that thing that we are, you know, Volkswagen drivers used to honk at each other as they would pass. And, you know, it's easier, it's more likely, you know, that you will notice someone on a bicycle if you've been out there riding a bicycle yourself. And so part of this I see is just, you know, survival. Maybe we won't get hit so much. But I love the idea that, you know, for for women, you know, seeing other women ride, it makes it, you know, uh, I don't want to talk about safe spaces, but it, it, you know, it helps to welcome them more when they know there are other people like them doing that thing. And I just I'm fundamentally a big tent person. I want lots of people being cyclists. It's good for the world. Yeah, absolutely. Right. With you. I'm with you. <laughs> um now you know w- within the bike industry every time we start having one of those conversations um you know whether it's a, a piece on bicycle retailer or something happening within social media one of the things that we see recur is that you know some white dude like us then pushes back and says, well, you know, we wanted to have more women, you know, ride with us, work with us, whatever. They're hard to find. Um, dude, you know, I, I don't know if it's half your staff or two thirds of it is, is women at this point And, you know, of some, shall we say, some diversity even beyond that. Um, you found talent. Uh, you know, I mean, I've got a relationship now with Gloria Lou. Uh, editing my work there and Gloria's a flipping gem. Um, She's awesome. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I really enjoy the interaction that I've had with her, you know, both when we're at events um, and, you know, via email as uh, she's worked on editing my work. Um, She's an exceptionally talented person, but she wasn't a bike industry lifer before she got to you. You know, what sort of vision did you guys have to have, uh, and I'm using guys colloquially, um, 
you know, what sort of vision did you have, have to have in terms of identifying talent as you came across people? Well, you just have to look harder because you, so you're exactly right. It's, it's the bike industry, right? And if you're going to do anything, uh, it's the sort of like the first wave is all or largely, uh, dudes. That's, you know, that's, that's just the way it is right now. Right. And so, yeah, when you start, uh, we were looking, Gloria came in to handle a gear section. And when we were looking for a gear editor, um, lots, lots of guys, you know, who first, and even for me, like it's the first to mind are often like, Oh, how about that guy's great. That guy's great. You know, I worked with that guy. And then the people who apply are guys. And then, so, and a lot of those guys are good and they're qualified and, uh, they could have been hired, but you know, we thought like, okay, well, let's just look harder. Let's let's just let's just cast everything wider, and let's talk to people, and let's just ask, do you know anyone else? Do you know anyone else? Do you know anyone else? And we just got a bigger pool together, and so that pool, you know, instead of um, deciding between uh, 100 people and uh, 92 of them are dudes and eight are women, you know, we had a pool of. 200 people and you know it was like 170 to 30 or you know something like that i'm making these mm -hmm. numbers up but then you know and that from that you just you surface you search and search and search and you know it's important to note that uh and i said this at an industry thing once i why none of these people are here because they're women they're here because they're great at their jobs and we knew they could do it and we knew they could bring something to the magazine. None of them were hired because they were women, but we searched for them because they were women. And then they proved that they were as good or better than everyone else applying. So that's why they're here. But the, the work is in the search and you just you better just work your ass off and find them. And you got to do that up front. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's like it's apparent from the quality of the magazine that. You know, this wasn't some sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, affirmative action thing where it's like, uh, you know, I, I'm reminded again of, you know, James Watt back in the 1980s. You know, I have a woman. I've I've got a cripple. I've got a, you know, right, was, right. you know, just the, the, the worst possible expression of, no, look, there's diversity. I hired one of each of them. Collect the whole set. Um and yeah, can we? Can I just go? Because I want to go. You know, we so the, the women on staff here, are Emily Furia, who I hired out of college, I think in like uh, 1999 or 2000 or something. She's been with us a long time, and she's you know edited books, and she just knows the territory. And she was a uh, uh, all American miler, by the way, in college. And we have uh, <laughs> Leah Flickinger, who's our executive editor, who really, if if you're talking about like the magazine's great, she's going to get a most of the credit or all of the credit uh and certainly more than me when it comes to the actual editing and production of stories she worked at women's health a big mag you know huge women's magazine and she was a book editor before she came here and you know sh she's awesome um we have hannah weinberger who mm -hmm. we hired she had interned get this she's like got a i'm going to be working for her someday she's got a better career than i do she <laughs> interned at uh outside uh npr and i think it was cnn like, right, like incredible fine. Wow, right? and her uh, presence on social media shows she, just what yeah. a brilliant mind she has. Yeah, um, I was just, so I was just judging the American Society of Magazine Awards, and my judging partner was Allison Overholt, who's the editor of ESPN, 
Yeah, this is kind of coincidentally. See, she's the first uh, woman editor of a major sports magazine, and, and she's a badass, right? She's a, I, she is really, really sharp, and she's got you guys. She's be tough as nails to survive over there, right? Because yeah, no, that is that imagine. is a sausage factory like no other. And uh, she knew Hannah. She's like, oh, I love Hannah on social media. And so I came back and told Hannah, you know, because Allison's like a rock star if you're a woman in sports media. Yeah. And Hannah was super psyched. Um, we've got Lydia Tanner, who uh, we, ju- you know, we, hi- we lured her here from Boulder. And she's uh, one of our digital editors. And she just she crushes it. And she's had a huge impact on the magazine. Um, Elspeth Hewitt. Who I knew she I, I used, she when she was like twelve I used to race against her in these little dumb races I do and she you know, she grew up on the track uh, and she you know she's as legit as it gets and she's our social media editor now and God, I feel like I'm probably leaving someone out well, Gloria but the, just, Gloria Gloria and, who stood yeah, on the so, podium at flipping enduros. And yeah, and so when we hired Gloria, she was she great background. She had like worked in finance and was like, "This is not for me." Uh, so she, you know, she's really smart and uh, smart to get out of it. And was a <laughs> ski bomb. And then when we hired her, I think she was like in France, maybe at like Chamonix or somewhere, uh, just like climbing mountains and skiing. And we we got her to move here. And she yeah, she's incredible. I yeah, when she told me her her story, we were, you know, walking down a hall at Interbike and she was telling me kind of the, the transition, you know, and, and various eddies of her life. Um, and I was like, and you wound up at bicycling, you know, my gosh, you've played this well. Um, yeah. So hang on. And I left out too. I've been oh. out of, so there's Kate Giddings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah bike messenger like trips across the country and she is i can say this because you know she's sort of very proudly out um and uh married to her wife and is very public about this so i can say it and it's important for her because she likes people to um you know she likes to represent um she's a lesbian and that's been uh, another great viewpoint for us to have uh and we have taylor royak who we hired uh from a bike shop a local bike shop uh, and I'd always seen her. I knew she was super sharp, kind of always had our eye on her. And she is our online gear editor. So that's our that's our staff of women. And they're they all kick ass. Well, and, and the thing that I find so remarkable is, you know, as you said, you made you, you know, you, you said with uh, uh, some some force that, you know, yeah, this wasn't kind of an affirmative action thing that you just went looking for talent and you know you looked differently and and the result is you know bicycling today reads unlike it has ever read in its existence you know it's a it's a significantly different magazine um you know i i i i sort of embarrassed to say this but you know there were years where you kind of lost me as a reader where i i love bicycles i love bicycle magazines i want to read all the bike magazines but there was a a period in there where i just couldn't really get through anything um and then uh somewhere during uh peter flax's tenure i started realizing oh my gosh they're doing really great long form stuff again um and there was that exchange you and I had in our comments section, you know, a, a few years back, um, where you compared uh the magazine to kind of uh the the 
bicyclist's version of the New Yorker, where you know there's there's newsy stuff, there are short bits, uh, but there's really fantastic long form stuff, and uh, you know you guys deserve uh, deserve someone to say you know no one else is doing the sort of long form work in cycling that you are. You you are the opportunity. That's, yeah, I mean that's great. To, that's great to hear overall, and we, you know, we appreciate that. And I would, I would say it's not, um, you know, it takes a, a it takes a, a lot of energy and, uh, frankly, money to get that good long form journalism out. And so it, I, you know, I think that's less a knock against the other cycling magazines than I, you know, I'm just not sure they have the resources to do it. We're the uh, we're the ones who are positioned to do it. Um. I mean, certainly that's part of it. You know, the, the editing process that you guys have um, for, you know, taking a, a story from concept uh, to published piece, you know, it's, I can say with considerable experience, having done work for vir- virtually everyone else, you know, it's, it's a more intense process. It's more deliberate. It's more careful. Uh, it's more thorough. Um, but, you know, there's also something to be said for just simply allowing a writer you know, 4,000 words to, to chase a story. And, you know, even that part is a challenge, you know, whether or not you're, you're going to, um, devote the financial resources necessary to cultivate the same sort of story, just being willing to, to give a writer a fifth page, you know, that's still a significant difference between, uh, bicycling and other publications out there. So, right. I mean that, you know, that page is money. That's, when we give you those extra pages, that's that's real money to us that we're investing in that story. Yeah, yeah, and it shows. Um, in terms of your own experience, you know, I remember in the interview you did with Fatty, you know, you uh, you went to the brass and you said, "Let us make, you know, the magazine that we would want to read. Let us make." You know, a magazine not to try to coax people into cycling, but for the dedicated cyclist. And it strikes me that that was the single biggest turning point in terms of your own experience in producing the magazine, you know, and with the staff that you have, you know, practically speaking, you know, how do you see that play out? What's what's that like for you? It was an important part of that. Uh, God, I love that question because it makes me think about the staff. Uh, an important part of that was when I defined um, passionate and core, it didn't mean roadie uh, or or mountain biker or roadie and mountain biker, or it didn't mean someone who rides five days a week. It it meant someone for whom cycling was kind of central to their lives. And we, we it was important to us that it doesn't really – we don't care what form that takes, mm-hmm. uh, as as long as that passion exists, and that that's true for the staff. They all they pursue cycling in lots of different ways, uh, and it's really opened my eyes up to all the ways that cycling touches people. Uh, and I've, you know, once we have the staff in place, there's I'm I you know I say this a lot to them. I'm like this is my job's in your hands, guys. You know, guys, here we go. But uh, I, I call them guys all the time. They, they, sure. Uh, my job's in your hands. I'm trusting you. Let's do this. And, you know, I give guidance and I weigh in and I help out it and all that. But really, it's it's generative of the staff uh, 
that the enthusiasm they bring is just sort of automatically authentic because they're authentic. They're the real thing. And they're the real thing in lots of different ways. And so we don't we don't have to sort of go through these purity tests like is this a is this a real is this really for cyclists? Uh, uh, you know, we we just did a story about a guy who uses his bike to hunt. Yeah, uh, which we yeah, lost, yeah. which we lost some subscribers over, right? But wow. that guy loves that that guy. His the bike is central to how he experiences his life, and so we put it in. Uh, you know, Kate. We also did a story, Kate wrote a story about wearing uh she dressed as a giant banana for Halloween once and wrecked uh and was laying in the road as a giant banana and that was also authentic you know it's like super goofy <laughs> yep. right yeah it's not like you know it's not like Lance Armstrong but it's it's authentic to the cycling experience and it 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 just works when you when you get these people who love the sport and love publishing yeah. Yeah. And, it, you know, like I said, it really shows. I mean, the, the story about the guy, the the hunter, um, you know, the moment I flipped to that, I knew, oh, man, you know, this is going to cause a firestorm with some people who are, you know, so hopelessly left their right. Um, but, you know, it it was one of those things that I was fascinated to read it because I know that Jim Felt, the founder, founder of Felt Bicycles, it's something he does. He uses an e-bike with a trailer and he goes, you know, up into the Sierra and goes hunting, you know, elk and all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, whatever he can, he can, you know, whatever he's feeling like going after. Um, but he's a big hunter and he's, you know, he's not using ATVs or four by fours or anything else. He's using an e-bike. Uh, it's an e-fat bike at that. Um, and so it was one of those things that, um, because I knew his background, um, or, you know, what his riding life is these days. Uh, I, I knew that, you know, this was going to be further insight into something that I knew was out there. And so, yeah, uh, I, I have to agree. It was a really authentic piece. Um, you know, and, uh, hunting, it's like, well, I, I'm not particularly geared for it, but, um, I celebrate those who can, you know, I, I think it's a pretty responsible way to engage with the landscape. Yeah, his story in particular worked. You know, you, you you sort of bring up this idea of sort of diverse views, and it makes me think. Uh, it so we don't like when you hire women, you're not hiring like a, you're not hiring like the iconic woman, right? You're not hiring like woman. You're hiring women, and so uh, they they all have different ways of thinking about cycling and what it's been great for me to realize there's really no such thing as like women cycling like it's not a it's not a thing you know it's not there are people out there who think it means we've gotten in trouble for writing stories about like um i think it was like how the best makeup if you want to wear it while you ride you know we've done things like that and there are parts of the women's cycling community who really don't like that they they um, really take offense to sort of the idea. Uh, well, I don't know what they take offense to, but they take offense. And so, sure. Uh, but we have women on staff who like to wear makeup when they ride, and we have women on staff who don't, and we have women on staff who 
like women specific bikes and we have women on staff who don't so there's not the big revelation for me out of all this in which i hope dudes if you're listening the big revelation for me is there's no such thing as there's no such thing as men's cycling right yeah and there's so there's no such thing as women's cycling either I it's, couldn't a, agree it's more. A endlessly diverse uh approach you know everyone has their own way to approach cycling and so that's it's it took this once we have all these women it took this pressure off to be like how do we cover women's cycling we just like put in the magazine what they're interested in and you know at, at, once it passes sort of the edit test is this going to go in does it fit the mix but if it they pursue this the shit they're interested in and that goes in the magazine and so we don't we never cover women's cycling anymore we just cover cycling from the viewpoint of an amazingly diverse and smart and sharp group of women. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's my sermon. I, I, I felt like I was really up on my, I almost got on my desk while I was saying that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, something I've, I've said, I'm pretty sure I put it in print at some point is, you know, for every woman you find who wants a pink bike, I can find you another woman who will shoot you. If you try to sell her a pink bike, you know, it's, uh, you know, we are, we are as a species pretty diverse. Um, and so, you know, I just want to try to take an opportunity to help celebrate what's, what diversity there has been established in the industry and those who are helping to lead that. And certainly you guys help get credit for that. Yeah. Actually, you know, I thought Molly Herford is a contributor for us. Uh, she's on retainer. She does a lot of work for us. Uh, I think a lot of people know her and Celine Yeager, who I can't believe I'm just now mentioning the fit check. Well, it goes to show just how how big an audience, how how big a staff it is, you know. And they're all they're is they're as completely different as if you got I don't know how many women that is, you know, 10 or 12. But if you got 10 or 12 guys together that as much as they would have completely different views, obviously, duh, the women are humans they all have completely different views and that informs the magazine. And that's what I think has really made it great is sort of the diversity of that rather than, Oh, we're representing women now. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I think, yeah, I, you know, the, the magazine is stronger as a result. Um, you know, even though it, it was, a. uh, it, uh, as you put it, you know, a conscious decision to just look better, you know, look for, for talent in a better way. And, uh, boy, I, I, you know, I appreciate the change. All right. And also I want to acknowledge while I'm sort of bragging about diversity, <laughs> I know we're, we're still largely white and that it is something that is always, uh, always in our mind. And in fact, the last, uh, glorious Chinese, yep. um, my grandfather was Mexican uh, but I don't look very Mexican. I think uh, I don't know if my I think my grandmother might have fooled around. I don't know. She was a uh, she was an exotic dancer, and uh, I used to tease. I can say this. I used to tease her about it a little when she was alive. I don't. I actually don't think I'm Mexican, but I can you know sometimes use that. Uh, but uh, you know we're still. Lar- I'm 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 aware as an editorial staff, we're still largely white and. Uh, uh, you know, all I can say is we're trying, you know, and when the opportunity comes, we're trying. 
And we're, it, when we think about contributors and writers and photographers, not just the people in the pictures, but it's important to me that the people creating it, um, you know, we'd love it not just to be white people, but like Hispanic and African-American and, you know, whatever, whatever, you, whatever is whoever wants to work for us, get mm-hmm. in touch. Well, and that's the thing. I, you know, I think once you bring, you know, those those diverse voices, you know, it really does something different um, as one white guy talks to another white guy. Yeah. Right. Uh, Let's like just, just to be clear. So everyone knows this. We understand. The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, tenuousness. I, you know, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's like, well, I guess part of the thing for me is that we we have been the gatekeepers, you know, because, you know, we built the castle. You know, and then we put the guards at the moat, you know, and so it's it's up to us to start letting other people in. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to give it, give up what I do for a living, but um, I want to celebrate, you know, when it is uh, more diverse and, and interesting as a result. So, well, it, it makes it cooler. You know, that's been my experience. Like I've I've I get to, I, I sort of fall in love with cycling over and over and over and over again. And the past year or so, a lot of that's been driven by my staff. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool, man. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for the chat. It, anyone out there, if we offended, I'm sure we did by something we said, because I know this is a tough topic to talk about. Just again. Patrick and I are aware that we're two white dudes talking about this. Oh, okay. <laughs> what do you think so far? Well, you know, I've spoken with Bill. You've spoken with Bill. Everybody loves Bill Strickland. He's just awesome. And when I spoke with him, similar to what he said in this conversation, he iterated to me that most of the or 50 percent of the staff was now or close to 50 percent was now female, which, you know, I just kind of lit up my little light bulb and went, wow, that's really cool. And and, you know, I'd have to say if Bob Rodale were alive today, he would be grinning from ear to ear because he's the kind of guy who would appreciate what Bill's done with the hiring of women and and Leah too, everybody at, at the organization. But Rodale was a was a, a sort of a futuristic company in the first place, don't you think? You know, if any organization out there in publishing could be called progressive, I'd have to say, you know, we'd better start with Rodale ahead of anyone else. Organic Living. I mean, they've done so many titles over the years uh, that speak to engaging in the world in a different sort of way. And to hear how much their readership has evolved because they made these changes uh, to their staff. And it's one of those things. What we're talking about is somewhat ephemeral, at least, again, to me, a white guy. I don't, you know... I look at the magazine now and I see something different and I'm not entirely sure objectively what some of those differences are. I can say, okay, their features are longer. They're doing more long form stuff, but you know, they're a magazine. They've always done some listicles. They've always done, you know, some short catchy stuff that's easy to read, you know, something you can flip through as you're sitting on the toilet. But what it is about that that's different now because their staff has changed I can't really articulate, but it's something that has obviously resonated uh, given what that evolution in their readership is. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure 
that I could put my finger on it either. I do remember in my original conversation with him how they were changing the online magazine and the print magazine and how, interestingly enough, circulation of the print magazine is better now than it's been in a while, which is just mind-boggling when you think about the publishing business right now. Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, on one hand, um, yeah, you know, everybody keeps saying print is dead. Well, print's not dead yet. Uh, but it when you consider how much of their readership was, you know, dominated by men, um, you know, at times upwards of 90%. Well, if you produce a product that engages women, uh, that doesn't turn them off, um, you know, holy cow, look at that. There's, you know, half the population on the planet is, is women, 51% last I recall. So more than half. And so why wouldn't their readership grow? You know, um, so it's it's a it's a testament to you know being forward thinking, right, right. So uh, I'm curious now. You know, one of the things that you know as we as we talk about uh, gender issues and orientation issues, something that happens uh, is that there's a slice of the populace that will push back against this and say that we can't take a joke that you know we're a bunch of humorless people and, you know, uh, you know, being politically correct has run amok and, you know, ruined America and all this stuff. And I, I really, I, I, I chafe at that idea and, you know, I see how important it is, uh, to just try to treat people with respect. But at the same time, you know, I will admit that, um, it's nice that, you know, it's nice when we can joke uh, with each other, uh, joke about ourselves. I mean, I'm a pretty nerdy guy. Um, and it would be pretty easy for me to take myself much too seriously. Um, you know, I, I try to be open about that and I do try to poke some fun at myself. Um, I'm curious, you know, what's your take on, you know, how we talk about ourselves and, uh, you know, engage humor uh, while still treating people with respect. I'll tell you a little story, and then I'll tell you my philosophy. One is when uh, Brian, who is my husband, came to interview for the job that he eventually came here for with me, my very first question to him was, do you have a good sense of humor? Seriously, you can see it's on paper. I actually wrote that. Do you have a good mm-hmm. sense of humor? Humor, it to me, people who are humorless need to just stay home. You know, if you can't, <laughs> if you can't take a joke, what's problem? What's the problem with you? On the other hand, I think that we have lost, as a society, at least here in the U.S., so much in the way of respect and civility, and it, people are so rude and obnoxious and in a hurry, and you see that with. Men especially doing things like blowing stop signs on their bikes, like, you know, flipping people off on their bikes. Those are the kinds of things people remember when mm-hmm. when cyclists are out there. So I think women can add a softness, a more of a nurturing. I know that's a word that many of many women might bristle at hearing. But the truth is, that's what they do naturally. I don't think they have to try 
I don't know, but I don't know a lot of women who are just rude and obnoxious. And yet I do know a lot of men like that or, or enough. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it does seem to be the sort of thing that, you know, falls under a larger umbrella of just being inconsiderate. Right. Um, and, and I, I have the sense that, and I, you know, I don't want to make any blanket statements here, but I have the sense that, you know, based on a number of extraordinarily intelligent women that I know that their ability to navigate those waters has, has come from a need uh, to be able to move through situations with grace where, uh, you know, being powerful and, and, you know, macho or whatever, um, physically intimidating isn't going to work for them. And so they've had to find another way through and consideration of others' feelings seems to be, you know, a pretty handy tool for the toolbox. Um, you know, that's said by uh, a white guy who's still learning. Well, I hope we're all still learning only all the time. That would make me very happy. <laughs> um, okay. Now, before we get to our interview with Amanda Batty, right. I, I want to touch a little bit on your experience as a retailer. You know, I've I've certainly been a party to conversations about uh, women's bikes and women's product lines. And, you know, one of the big pushbacks against uh, a lot of women's product lines is that, you know, that, that adage of shrink it and pink it. Um, <laughs> and I remember sitting down with uh, a product director for a big bike company. Uh, they'll, they'll go nameless. And I remember saying, you know, well, you've got this, all these different colorways that are, shall we say, on the more feminine side, teals, pinks, you know, some lilac, that sort of thing. And I said, you know, for every woman I know who wants a pink bike, I know another woman who will positively shriek, you know, if she can't have a red bike, you know, or a blue bike. She doesn't want something that looks girly. Uh, she wants something that, you know, in the words they've used to me is badass. Um, and I, you know, so to me, the big takeaway for me in those conversations has been that there's no one truth. Uh, you can't, you know, there's no easy solution to what it is to produce women's product, um, even when it comes to sizing. You know, women come in a lot of shapes and sizes and proportions change. You know, what is it, what is it you did differently during your years as a retailer to try to accommodate your women clientele? So here's a fact. 50% of my business was women. So I was unusual right from the get-go. And here was my tagline. It was on our website. It was, I used it all the time. Women want what men want. They want to be treated mm. with respect. They want to be uh, have product and um, equipment as good as men's. So, you know, people think that women won't spend money on themselves. And the truth is, we don't always spend a lot of money on ourselves. But to say that, to say that we want something less expensive or less technical or less uh, quality than a man is, is so misguided. Men, women well, want what men want. They want to be treated with respect and have the same access to good equipment and good quality product. It's really yeah. simple. 
I mean, I've known women who once they found out that, you know, whatever woman's bike in the line wasn't offered with Durace, they just flat out decided, okay, if you don't think women are going to pay the money to have the quality of Durace, I'm not going to buy your bikes at all. And they would just go to a wholly different line, you know, either within that dealer or go to a different dealer entirely uh, until they found something where, you know, they could get the level of quality, you know, in bike and fit, you know, uh, in appearance uh, that they were looking for. If and they could find it. It boggles my mind. Pardon? Go if, ahead. If they could find it. So there was a period yeah. of time when it's true, what you could find would be, and, and I'm going to name names because this is a podcast and we can do that. Uh, I, I also <laughs> do a radio broadcast, so I have to be more careful of this. But there was a time when women's bikes were made by Georgina Terry. Small front yeah. wheel, large rear wheels, shorter, you know, shorter, little tiny handlebars. That, and, and what you said just a few moments ago about, you know, you have five foot ten women who have shorter legs and longer torsos, just like you have five foot ten men who have longer legs and shorter torsos. So that to say that a, a woman's bike is specific to a body type is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Everybody deserves a bike that fits him or her. And so if manufacturers would just look at the reality of what sizing is all about, it isn't about men's and women's. It's about people. You know, we're people and we're somewhat different from one another. Yes, most women have narrower shoulders. So you put a 40 centimeter bar on it instead of a 44. But beyond Mm -hmm. that, it could be that she needs a 58 centimeter frame and he needs a 52. And yet they're very similar in size. It's very difficult for me to deal with the way manufacturers decide for us what we're supposed to ride. And that's why I spent 20 years of my life doing nothing but custom bikes. I mean, we only fit, designed, and build custom bikes because I couldn't stand dealing with that production stuff. And I still can't. Wow. I know. I'm uh, I'm a snob. Well, but I mean, it's a, it's a testament, you know, that you should do such a high-end operation and you know, in spite of doing something that normally, you know, it's kind of at the shallow end of the bell curve in terms of what retailing is, you should find, you know, such a devoted following uh, with women. Um, You know, my gosh, somebody, it's a shame you couldn't just find another woman to take on your operation once you were ready to step away from retail. Well, I still do fittings. People still come up from all over for fittings. So it's all about the fit, you know, and you can take that information and take it anywhere you want. The problem is, is, you know, where I slacked off and I shouldn't have was I should never have let go of my knowledge of the current crop of bikes. But it doesn't take long to get that back. You know, if I really if I really wanted to do that. But I like talking to people like you. (laughs) You know, so that's more fun. Cool. Okay, so. I asked you uh, to interview Amanda Batty for this episode. You did. And uh, it was a, a pretty delightful conversation. Why don't you lead us in? So uh, it's true. I have spoken with Amanda in the, in the past. The last time I spoke with her before this time, she was just coming out of this kind of controversial pink bike thing. You might remember that. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure you do. So she's got, uh, she's just delightful. And I, we decided we would talk with her and see what was going on with her. And we wanted to talk about um, women on the podium. And we also wanted to talk about compensation. So it was, it was sort of about, is women's bicycle racing boring? Which... If anybody watched the Cyclocross World Championships last weekend, I would say that was one of the most exciting races on the planet. And are women being compensated? And uh, she has some interesting things to say about that. Hi, Amanda. It's so good to talk with you again. And we are going to be doing our conversation today for a project with Red Kite Prayer. So that's pretty exciting. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, it will be. It always is. It's always fun to talk with you. So I'd like to begin by talking about a couple of misconceptions. And you and I have had some conversation about what we were going to talk about today. And one is that women's cycling is boring. And two is about funding for female racers. So over the weekend, we saw 26-year-old Belgian racer Sané Kant take top honors at the World Cyclocross Championships. And I don't believe anyone watching it would have found it boring. So what was so special about that? And what do you think is so exciting about women's bicycle racing? You know, I've actually had the opportunity to answer this question more in the last like three weeks than I ever have before. And it's something that I'm really excited about because Don was during the race there. I think there's something about women's racing. There's something graceful that's combined with a very animalistic competitiveness. And so when you mix the two at a, at a high level, you hear a lot of people say, oh, women's racing is really boring. Like I would turn it off. You shouldn't. Because if, if people people who are fans of a sport always tell me women's racing is fascinating because there's this combination of grace and aggression that always seems to come into these truly amazing performances, you know, like at Cyclocross World. And that race, to me, was absolutely incredible because it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just like the, the pushing and the maneuvering throughout the race and the, the closeness of the race. Anyone who is watching is going to say, like, that final move where, you know, like, foot out, flat out, descent down the last hill and around the corner for the, for the overtake was, I mean, oh, my God. Like, I was, I was standing in my living room. You know, I, I had already seen the tweet. I hadn't watched the race live, but I'd already seen the tweet. I knew who had won. But I was standing in my living room just, like, kind of jumping up and down and cheering. Well, you know, everybody expected Marianne Voss who is seven-time world-time champion to win. And here, Shani, who has wanted this jersey for, she said since she was six years old. And so all of the ice and all of the the snow and the mechanicals and the falling down and the getting up, it was about as exciting as any of the men's racing I've seen. I I, I would say that it, it was more exciting than any men's cyclocross race I've ever seen. Because you have someone who, and, and the background of Sana and Marianne. Both is so powerful. She's so she's so good. She is the best in the world. Well she was. And to to have Sana who took so much flack last year for her podium face, her disappointment, she, a human emotion that she expressed on the podium because she did not like losing. She took a lot of heat for that. There was a lot of like there's a lot of emotion shaming. There was a lot of there's just a lot of belittling. And so for me to see her come back and to see her sell just, it gave me goosebumps because there was so much background to it. And there was so much, I mean, everybody cheers for Marianne Fellows, but there was also, we love an underdog story. And so when there was also that excitement, that build up, you know, the, the ice and the snow and cyclocross is inherently 
exciting to watch. I love I love cyclocross. I would never do it, but I love cyclocross, and so you would never do it <laughs> to see. I would ne- I would never. You know, I've I've tried. I've thought about getting into it a couple of times. I was actually going to start racing amateur this, this year, and I didn't. But I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write it off. Like I would never. It's crazy. It's, it's gritty. It's, it's, for the, it's the most. It is. It's the. It's for status. It's for status and masochists. I think. But that's why I respect it. And so to watch these women maneuver each other and the fall, and like you said, the falling down and the ice and the mud and the snow, and it's not pretty. It's not delicate. It's not all of these. It's not all of these things that women are supposed to be. And that last move was so aggressive and so skilled and so graceful and so daring because it could have gone really bad. At the apex of that last turn, where she was going the fastest, she had a foot out, like, it could have gone so bad, and it didn't. And that risk versus reward, that's what makes it exciting for me, regardless of gender. Well, let's talk a little bit about reward, because that is the other part of the equation that all these really, really good women athletes, bike racers, are not always paid the way they should be, and sponsorship becomes very difficult. So what about women and money and what's happening on that stage? That is actually really exciting and still really disappointing, but there are so many good things happening. There are still a lot of organizers and a lot of race series that don't pay out equal payments. I think there's a general belief in cycling that I think it's it's still just such a sexist, ingrained belief that women should have other jobs, that women being athletes full-time is inappropriate. And I think that's the basis of a lot of the behavior that goes on, where a male athlete is totally okay, but for women, there's still this belief that full-time professional athletics is not for women, which is, if you look at a lot of the actions that are taken, you know, by the UCI, by federations across the globe, you know, by race directors, by all these different organizational bodies, that is the core belief at work, which is really disappointing. But I think that that is changing. You know, for instance, the British Downhill Series announced this year that they're going to do equal payment. There was equal payout last year at Big Bear. I made it to do about it, you know, as I usually do about things that I care about. And a lot of, you know, a lot of other voices stepped in and spoke up and we were able to encourage the organizers to match women's payout and men's payout. And there was actually a larger race field with pro women's race field than there was at national championships a week later. So that I think that that's a huge, I mean, the prize purse was quite large, but I think the equal payout definitely had something to do with it. And last but not least, this uh, this week, it was in Total Women's Cycling covered it, but Ariane Luti, um, the Swede who lives in South Africa, she's the, I think she's three-time champion of the uh, the South African National mountain bike series she said that she wasn't going to the first stop she she boycotted it she said i'm not going to go because there's not equal payout and she you know they she won the cape epic three times and she's a big name and she simply you know she she announced on her facebook that ultimately she loves the event but i'm i have to follow my heart is what she said and because of that the race organizers redid the prize money and they offered equal prize money. And I think that that's really important because women don't have the same sponsorship opportunities. It's still a, an ingrained belief that women are not economic powerhouses, despite what the data and despite what the research says. The numbers are in, and women represent a huge buying market. We outbuy men almost seven to one in every category, including electronics and vehicles. Seven to one, we outbuy men. Like, that's a huge number. And to have so much media in cycling to have so much sponsorship, so many sponsorship dollars, to have all of these things that don't reflect actual value of women, 
is thoroughly disappointing, but I think that's changing. I, I feel like it's changing, and I think that there's... I don't, I don't want to be cryptic, but I'm going to be. <laughs> I think that in the next two years, there are some really incredible things that are going to happen that will change cycling forever as far as equal payout. And I, that's, that sounds like, but yeah. Is that something you know or something you think? Something I know. Okay. Um, I think it's going to be a, a tetrad of things, I guess you could say, of people making decisive moves. And there will, yeah, I'm not going to say anything else. But okay. I think that, that the environment right now is changing so much that there is opportunities that are being created by athletes like Ariane, by Somcamp, by these athletes have stepped outside of the box and said, this is who we are. We are not apologizing. You need to pay us equally. And that's, I think that's where it's going. It's going to be in the hands of athletes who step up and who create. The people who are creating the future are the ones who are changing things. And that's unequivocally women. So Let me go back to one statement you said about women are thought not to be capable of, for whatever reason, being full-time athletes. And I look at sports like tennis and golf, where you have some very dominant women. And in fact, when we watch women's tennis, especially with people like Serena Williams and Venus Williams, it is such an exciting and explosive kind of athleticism that you see in these women that it seems to me you could look to those sports and say, cycling can be just like that, if not better. I think that if, there are so many sports like that. I mean, not just tennis, not just Serena. I mean, Serena is, woo, you know, Serena and Venus have always been these powerhouses. But, you know, Serena's recent wins and her greatest of all time. That's a huge deal. And, it's, you know, the, from tennis to golf to soccer. I mean, look at the U.S. women's soccer team. They've out-earned, out-played, out, I mean, they have recreated soccer in the United States simply because they are good. Regardless of gender, they are good. But even more importantly, a lot of those women worked jobs up until last year, two years ago. They, they were not full-time soccer players, and they still excelled. And without people investing in them and believing in them, and that's what blows my mind, is that there's so much talent, female talent, that, is, that goes unsupported because of multiple reasons. But it's really, truly a shame that so many women have to work full-time jobs, one or even, you know, multiple jobs in order to fund their athleticism. It's you know, like anything else. There's such a huge disparity that women have to work three times as hard to be a successful professional athlete, despite the fact that they have their own value. Because if you look, nobody's looking at women's soccer, at the U.S. women's soccer team and saying, oh, that's boring. It's not. It's absolutely not. They're, they're highly aggressive. They're very skilled. They've they know the personalities. They've marketed themselves well. And their federation has done very little for them. And, you know, same with Serena and Venus Williams. Same with, you know, women's golf in the U.S. Same with, you know, until Lindsey Vaughn seeing, until Ronda Rouse fighting. And there's always, there's always a watershed moment for female athletes who don't have support. And I think that there's, there's always a pioneer. I really think that there's always, you know, there's always that watershed moment where female athletics in a certain discipline are going to get noticed more. And I think that these watershed moments are happening Closer and closer before, closer and closer now than they ever happened before, you know, between Lindsey Vaughn, Ronda Rousey, U.S. women's soccer team, Serena Williams. I think that these events are happening because women are finally taking, they're not asking for permission to be equal earners. They're not asking for, you know, I, I think. So yeah, no, I got what you're saying. That, but, sure. And, yeah. and, you know, it's sort of we're getting to what everybody calls that tipping point, which is awesome. Yeah. So we need to wrap this up because that was sort of what I wanted to do was get you to capture the excitement of women cycling and then the parody that is coming with it. I'm really interested 
interested to know what you know, so I'm going to be hounding you to tell me in the, <laughs> in the future. I'm really excited that I got to talk to you again, and we will catch up. I mean, it's been a really long time since we talked, so I'm glad that maybe we've reconnected in a way that we can be in touch more often. Would that be good with you? I would love that. I would love that. And thanks for letting me talk about this. So... You heard that uh, Amanda has some really interesting things to say. She's very well informed, which I I appreciate. She keeps herself apprised of everything that's going on in her world of cycling. And it is broadening. I'm very curious as to what this new idea she has is and that what's going to change in the next two cycling seasons to make women cycling a lot more uh, equal, shall we say, with men. I don't know. What'd you think? I loved the interview. I I really did. She's such a a bright bulb. And, you know, she touched on something that I almost sort of wish that you guys had discussed even further. You know, she talked about when uh, Kant was on the podium last year at Worlds and, you know, that emotion flashed across her face, uh, the displeasure and disappointment of having lost out to Voss. And uh, she mentioned how... uh, uh, can't was uh, emotion shamed. And it's that sort of insight into, you know, what's wrong with how we treat women and not just women. I mean, this can happen to anybody, but you know, it's a, it's a great example of, you know, what we do to people sometimes that's not okay. It's a form of bullying. You know, you shouldn't feel that way. And it's not really okay to tell someone what their emotions should or shouldn't be. And I love how she stands up for that stuff and does it so clearly. Well, I think it comes right back to the conversation we were having before the interview with Amanda about civility and uh, and being you know just being a, a, a good person and not having to make somebody wrong, which turns out to make you right. You know that's why people make people wrong. So they can be right. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I I, I have to agree with you. You know, um, the nature of diplomacy is for everyone to get something out of the situation. You know, in social situations, there's no reason for anyone to be a loser. Uh, you know, you can navigate waters with grace, uh, so that you know you can say make a joke and everyone laughs instead of just one or two people. Right. Uh, I'm reminded of the Ellen DeGeneres quote. You know, it's only a joke if everyone's laughing. Um, and so you know, yeah, her her sort of insight on topics like that, you know, on gender parity in in women's racing, um, it's really important stuff. Yeah. And I think we'll see a lot more uh, of what's going on with that. This conversation has been ongoing about women's parity for the last couple of seasons. Uh, you know, we've talked with people like Inga Thompson and Karen Bliss at, when they were racing, which is, you know, now they're the uh, sort of elders of the of the peloton. They don't any longer race, but they have interesting memories. And it seems like there's a gap between when they were racing, what's going on now, and what happened to women in the interim. What has, what, I don't know what changed, and I'm not sure they know either. Uh, it, it It is interesting to go back and look at that and then you know, kind of scoot forward and see what's going on now. Well, it would be interesting to have, you know, say a panel discussion of, you know, someone like Karen Bliss 
as well as Amanda, you know, and someone else, uh, you know, currently in the, in the pro road scene, um, and just ask the question straight up, you know, what was your experience? Okay. That was, you know, uh, 1995. Um, you know, here we are 22 years later, you know, what's the scene like now, you know, how much change has there been? How much have we improved? Um, how much of this has been, you know, if there's an improvement, how much of this has been, you know, oh, the white guys are more enlightened now um, versus just know there are more women involved. And so it's easier for them to make changes because they're in positions of power. Karen Bliss is a great example of, you know, that that all too slow evolution of the bike industry itself because she's the head of marketing for Fuji. Right. One of the bigger bike bands out there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, we should split now for our mid roll. And, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to get ready for yet another interview in this program. Works for me. When my son was born, I realized I needed to finally get some life insurance. Um, I had neglected to do so, so far in my life. And when I went shopping for it, I realized that even though I was an exceptionally fit cyclist, uh, none of the companies out there took that into account in setting my rates. Um, I got a physical and it didn't ask me any significant questions. Uh, But now there's a company that helps you secure better life insurance rates because you're a cyclist. Uh, Health IQ advocates for a healthy, conscious lifestyle. They've used science and data to fight for lower rates on life insurance for the health conscious, including those who run, bike, and do other aerobic sports. In fact, research has shown that avid cyclists have a 45% lower cancer risk, 18% lower heart disease risk, and up to 28% lower risk of early death. Many cyclists don't realize they can get a special rate due to their active and healthy conscious lifestyle. So Health IQ has special rates with companies like New York Life on life insurance for cyclists and other healthy conscious people. Uh, check out our show notes. There's a link to their site, um, Health IQ slash Paceline. You can take their quizzes, uh, see the questionnaires. They've got a lot of information there. Health IQ. Diane, um, the other person that I've asked to speak with us for this episode is Chris Culver. Uh, Chris is the former executive director of the Sonoma County Bike Coalition. She was the original director. She's the one who founded the organization. Um, She's gone on to serve on their board, uh, a role she's in, uh, she's doing right now. And she's also a board member and founding member of the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance, a mountain bike advocacy organization also here in Sonoma County. Although uh, Remba, the the larger, shall we say, service area uh, for the organization is the five counties of the North Bay, Marin, Sonoma, Napa, Mendocino, and Lake Counties. And she's somebody, you know, yeah, she's local to me and she's someone I've gotten to know. And the reason I wanted to speak to her not just because she was local to me, but because I've seen the regard that people have for her in the local community. Um, when you when you talk to people about advocacy, usually at some point, Chris's name will come up. 
and I've universally seen, you know, just very high regard for her. And so I, I wanted to talk to her to get her perspective on, you know, what it is women do differently in advocacy and how that has affected, uh, you know, the, the larger successes in bicycle advocacy in the U.S. Well, I think that, uh, I, you know, I, I have a little bit of background on, on Christine and and I have to say that, you know, Sonoma County, you're so lucky to have all of this sort of year-round cycling going on. A lot of good things are happening in California. And I think we all, especially us in the mid, you know, people think Cleveland's Midwest, we consider it East, but it's the mid area. We always look to the West Coast to see what's coming our way. Uh, And because she has had so much history in the bicycle uh, advocacy world. You know, Gary Helfrich has been out there in Sonoma County, too, um, yeah. doing doing a lot of, of work. But it's nice, it, it, just as we said it earlier in the program, women in advocacy. So uh, I, I'm glad that you, you got her to, to come on the show and talk. Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks for taking the time and agreeing to uh, talk with us on the Pace Line today. Absolutely. So glad to be here. So, uh, I've told our listeners uh, that you were the founding executive director for the Sonoma County Bike Coalition and that you currently sit on its board as well as uh, are a board member and founding member of REMBA. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's one piece of who you are as a cyclist. Do us a favor and just talk a little bit about your past in cycling. I mean, you've been in retail. You've raced at a very high level. Um, you've been rad in at least four or five different ways. Share some of that with us. Well, that is so sweet. Well, first, um, I'm actually the second ED of the Bike Coalition. I had the honor of um, being under the wings of Ted White, who is uh, an amazing um, uh, movie maker who coined the term um, critical mass. That really? we now use. Yeah, he's he's an amazing guy, and somehow we wrangled him to be our first ED, and uh, and I got to work under him for about a year before he went on to go back to school in Massachusetts. So, got to give him a lot of kudos for getting the organization up and off the ground, and, and okay. I took over the helm when he left. So. Um, but I started riding when I was about 19, got into uh, doing a little bit of road bike riding and discovered mountain bikes right away and started racing um, immediately because uh, apparently I'm kind of competitive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you may know. Um, and have have loved bikes. I mean, I fell into it like I was looking for it and needed something to give me direction in my life, and it truly did. Uh, So I I worked at bike shops for a number of years, and then I uh, raced and was really lucky to get to race for Richard Cunningham, who owned Mantis uh, Mountain Bikes at the time. This was back in the 80s, and had a couple of um, really great finishes, including uh, winning Mammoth Downhill, and I like to just go down say that fast. again. Just say that one more time to <laughs> let it sink in for people. I won the Mammoth Downhill races, and I think it was in eighty. 
85 or 86. I think it was 86. Um, and then, uh, I don't know. I like to, I like to go downhill fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did that and then I realized that I didn't. And at the time I, I had grown up in Orange County and at the time I, I was riding bikes down there and I realized I don't have to stay here. I don't have to stay in Orange County. I really was not a big fan of the whole car culture that was where I lived and uh, packed everything I owned up into a Volkswagen van and moved up to Sonoma County, which is where I live now, and immediately found home with Salsa Cycles and started racing for them. And I did that for a year, and we did the whole national circuit and won national downhills at Big Bear and uh, got fifth place at Worlds um, at Mammoth that year. And I don't know. It was a lot of fun. Bike racing is always fun. Um, But I burned out really pretty good after all of that and decided it was time to go back to school. And I did that for a few years. So, you know, after, I mean, I don't have the exact timeline here, but, you know, it sounds like there were years there, you know, spent, you know, racing and, and, you know, riding at a very high level. Um, And then when you moved into advocacy, it sounds like you had some time away from the sport, at least in terms of, of intensity, you, you know? Yeah. So, well, sort of, sort of. I mean, I went back to school and um, didn't race at all. And then I found myself at UC Davis and how can you go to UC Davis and not be involved in cycling? I immediately got right involved with the cycling team and that was fantastic. And we got to go to um, collegiate nationals where I was on the team and we got to win that year. I mean, we didn't get to win. We actually did a lot of hard work and kicked ass (laughs) (laughs) against our rival Stanford and Berkeley. Um, and it was a lot of fun. I had, hadn't done that kind of, uh, kind of, you know, team sports and that was, that was awesome to get to do that. And then when I left school and got back involved in the bike industry, um, I had a run in with some motorist as anybody who spends a lot of time on the road will, and, you know, inevitably it happens. Somebody told me to get off the road. And I had been so, I was like, that was the last straw. I mean, just so tired of people not understanding, you know, that bicycles belong on the road and that we have a right to be there. And I had done some volunteer work with the San Francisco Bike Coalition and had been involved with um, getting bikes access onto Golden Gate Transit buses and onto the ferries. And so I got to work that day and I Googled Sonoma County bicycle coalition because i had never heard of one and sure enough um a link popped up to the newsletter from the santa rosa cycling club that two months ago they had their first meeting wow yeah it was like and i called the phone number and i said i'm going to be there and at that point i went to the next meeting and went to every meeting afterwards and got my butt on the board and made myself a job there, left the job I was at, and sooner or later I ended up as the executive director for nine years, nine of the best years 
um, just amazing. It was like the most amazing job I've ever had. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You're a joiner then. Kind of bottom line, you're a joiner, aren't you? I like to, you know, when I see something that needs to be done, um, I, I, I want to get involved and I want to support the people that are doing it. I think it's really important to be involved in your community and not just be a, um, you know, somebody who complains about, you know, things not being the way they want them to be. Mm-hmm. It, it gave me a really great outlet. I finally felt like um, I was able to actually make a difference in the direction um, that uh, advocacy was going and had a direct voice into the way our roads were being built and having bike lanes put onto the roads and um, giving some support and background to public works folks, which they really wanted. They wanted to do the right thing here in Sonoma County. They just needed the support from the community to do the right thing. Um, You would often have neighborhoods who would fight hard against any change. Sure. And they just needed kind of the counterbalance of the rest of the community that really wanted to see the changes to make it happen. So it was good to be part of that. Wow. So uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you you know, there are a number of, of women in advocacy who've done some pretty incredible things. Um, but, you know, my experience as a resident here in Sonoma County now, everywhere I go, um, people talk about Chris Culver and what a great influence uh, you've been and uh, all, the, all the great work you've done over the years. I mean, it's, there's this sort of refrain, oh, do you know Chris Culver? <laughs> and it has come up in conversation in so many different ways, you know, ways that aren't just a matter of bicycle advocacy. So you come up in, in conversation in a number of different ways. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah, advocacy, but it's also a matter of, uh, you know, have you, have you ridden this road yet? Or, or have you ever done this event? Or, you know, you, your name comes up an awful lot. And so I wanted to talk to you for this episode because the regard for you is so universally high. And, you know, I don't want to just automatically say, oh, well, she's a woman. It's obvious. That's why people like her. Uh, (laughs) If that was only possible. (laughs) That's just as stupidly sexist as, you know, discounting your, your contributions and accomplishments because you're a woman. But I'm curious to get your take. You know, you've shared with me previously that many times while you were working as the ED uh, for the SCBC, that you'd show up and you'd be the only woman there. And I'm curious yeah. to know your perspective on, you know, what you think being a woman allows you to bring to the table. How does that inform your perspective on the diplomacy you've needed to get things done? Well, I think one of the things... Um that it brings to the table is that uh, cycling is not just a bunch of guys. Um, that there are women out there riding bikes. There are women who wish that they felt safe enough to ride bikes. And um, there's families out there. Um, it, I don't know if, you know, I, I've never really considered myself like the woman at the table 
because I've always felt like I had to get in there and fight for my um, my right to be at the table. Mm-hmm. And but I think um, that it makes it it makes it more human when they realize that it's not just the guy in Lycra who's out there pounding the miles and that it's actually somebody who's, you know, wearing regular street clothes, riding this bike from meeting to meeting and looks like everybody else. I always tried to make it so it seemed like that the cyclists that we're trying to accommodate out on the road are people we know. They're your doctor, they're your dentist, or they're your mail person, there's the checker at the store, the person who comes and clean your, cleans your house. It's like, it's not, I, I don't want the vision of the person on the bike to be just this hardcore, you know, I just got to go hammer out my miles person. Sure. Those people count very highly in my book. All, anybody who uses the bike for what, whether it's transportation or recreation, they are all very important pieces of this of the bicycling community puzzle. Um, but I really wanted the folks like at Public Works or that are making you know any of the um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for policies to realize that people who ride bikes are our neighbors and they're just regular folks. They're just people who want to use bikes for, you know, transportation and recreation. They're not some odd breed, you know. They're just mm-hmm. everybody. And that was probably the, the thing that I wanted to really bring to the table was that um, bikes are everybody. They're, it's nothing special. Let's just make it so it's safe for everybody out there. Nice. Well, I mean, it's that inclusive nature that you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, is often attributed, uh, to women. You know, I, I, I'm not sure every guy I know who, you know, who's ever worked in advocacy would have approached it in quite the same way. Uh, though, though it certainly makes sense. Um, you know, you've moved on from advocacy. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is you're doing now. Well, um, I left the Bike Coalition, um, had been there for nine years, and probably anybody who's listening to this that has done this type of advocacy will understand that that's a really long run. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot of, like, you know, kind of pounding your head against the wall of trying to, you know, change the way things are and, um, and communities who don't like change. And I... Um, went to try to do my own little business with a little art kind of pulling from my, my artsy side, doing some jewelry and things. And I did that for a few years, but I kind of came back full circle and found myself, um, working for an amazing Sonoma County supervisor. Her name is Shirley Zane. She's super pro bike friendly and was the, um, the, the, major fighter for the vulnerable uh, road user um, uh, ordinance that we had pushed through Sonoma County. And this actually allows people to litigate against drivers who, uh, um, you know, come too close or run them off the road. And there really wasn't a mechanism before that 
for there to be a legal way to go after somebody who um, violated your rights on the road. So when I saw that, you know, there was this job opening to go work for this person, it was like a, it, it made so much sense for me to go and work for her. But she's so much broader than just bikes. She does a lot of things that I think are super important when it comes to homelessness or mental health services and, um, you know, just taking care of our community. It's very important. Neat, neat, neat. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for spending this time uh, with us. Um, I look forward to getting back out there and riding with you more and uh, watching you drop me on a tandem without disc brakes. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say that I have to give credit to my stoker. Uh, He's super turbo back there. That was a good race. He he was pretty chill. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well done. Uh, Thank you. Okay, Chris. Well, uh, Thanks so much, and uh, we'll be out My there riding pleasure. with you soon. Okay. All right, great. Keep the uh, rubber side down, everybody. So that was Christine Culver, uh, board member for the Sonoma County Bike Coalition and REMBA, the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance. Um, she's such a delight, and it's just one of those things. Like I said before, I, I find her so impressive because the regard with which she's held in this community is a, a real testament to somebody who knows a thing or two you know, about, uh, you know, making new friendships, creating alliances. And I think it's a, a, a great example of, you know, what we need to do if we're going to see improvements in bicycle advocacy in the future. What do you think? Oh, I, she's wonderful. <laughs> you know, well, first of all, <laughs> she's a woman. So we'll just, we can just stop with that. No, just kidding. Just kidding. You, oh, we don't want to insult any of the men listening. I, she was great. And I think that her her background, her knowledge of the bicycle itself and some of the things that she's done in the past. You know, she, she was racing mountain bikes and she raced road bikes when she was 19. She was a volunteer. She was a board. I mean, she's done all these things that have elevated her to this position for which she is now consummately capable. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan. And uh, as someone who has ridden with her, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were on a descent off of uh, Bald Mountain. She was on a tandem running through some unbelievably technical terrain. Uh, and by the way, her stoker was a man. You know, I was just so going to ask, she, was she captaining the tandem? Wow. She was captain. She's brave. And uh, it was an older Ibis with a U-brake. <laughs> under the bottom bracket and cantilevers in front, I could smell the brake pads behind her. Yeah. <laughs> um, let us could. note that I, I was behind her, which is how I could smell them. Yeah, she dropped me on the descent on a tandem. Um, she's full-scale rad. So um, I could yeah, drop you could, like, on, on a descent. on a, make a few more like her. I could, yeah, drop, you. I could drop you on a descent <laughs> on a tandem, but I wouldn't be the captain. I'd, I'd be terrified. Are you kidding me? Um, yeah, terror is not something I think she's in touch with much of. <laughs> Evidently. Okay, so <laughs> one more thing for our show. Um, we always do our paceline picks, um, where we pick out a little something that's uh, been of interest or, or pleasure or desire each week. Um, mine is the Scratch Labs Apple Cinnamon Drink Mix. I've been doing a lot of cold weather riding, colder than I would actually prefer, and I love this stuff because you mix it with hot water and it's like having, you know, hot cider straight out of your bottle. Um, 
I don't know of another drink mix that I ever want warm. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, not on purpose. Um, but yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, like an, an orange drink mix that's uh, heated up in the in the noonday sun. Oh man, <laughs> that's rough stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm a big fan of Scratch, especially because you know, to the point of of today's conversation, they've got a really diverse workforce. Um, you know, and I I just I think that brings something really positive. Uh, to the cycling experience, the more diverse it is. So, yeah, uh, check out the apple cinnamon flavor of the Scratch Labs. Um, it's been my absolute go-to for the last, I don't know, two months now. Yeah. Well, you what know you what? Have, I want to know what you think is cold. <laughs> no, I don't think we should go there. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you what um, my pick is for this week. Uh, my okay. pick is Ellie Blue. She is adorable. She was here in Cleveland and gave a, a a talk at what we call the Stone Church, which is this beautiful building in downtown Cleveland. And uh, she shows a film about advocacy. She runs a publishing company called Ellie Blue Publishing. It's E-L-L-Y-B-L-U-E. And uh, her little zine, her her magazine is taking the lane. She does a lot of women's book publishing. So she did one about yoga and one about uh, picnicking on your bike. So she is the publisher, but she's also an author. So it's Ellie Blue, takingthelane.com is her website. Takingthelane.com. She's out of Portland. Go figure, right? A lot of good stuff coming out of Portland, not just beer. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for that. Um, and everyone, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I guess I should stop and thank uh, Editor-in-Chief Bill Strickland of Bicycling Magazine for being our guest today, uh, as well as Amanda Batty and Christine Culver. Um, there were so many people I wanted to talk to uh, about this that this is going to end up being um, a, recur- a recurring series. Uh, we'll be doing other interviews in the future on this Um yeah, I'm a white guy. I'm part of the problem, uh, but hopefully I can be part of the solution. Um, you know, certainly we want to do what we can to uh, give women a better voice in this industry and hopefully make this, a, you know, a friendlier, more welcoming sport for everyone. Well, I want to thank you for asking me to, to uh, be part of it. And it was my pleasure. And thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. Um, so for Diane Lees, I'm Patrick Brady. Thanks for listening to the Paceline Podcast.